talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Doug Lenry's back with you here on your like third favorite podcast because you like that one with uh, about a TV show. You like that. There's one about food that you like. There's one about puppies. There might be like a political one that makes some interesting observations. And then there's Buckeye Talk. That's fifth, but you'll take it. Doug Lambrose from Cleveland.com here for another edition we took last week off, and that means I'm rejuvenated. I'm reinvigorated. I'm fresh, baby. I was baking in the Florida sun, and now I am back. Kind of in like a little new like uh, podcast, almost pseudo studio in my basement. We'll see how it works. We want to up the uh, audio quality if we can. My boss, my big boss, not just my boss boss, my big boss sent me a new microphone in the mail, and I'm using it. Big boss, thank you very much. I think it sounds better. Great show. Phil Steele is here. He is one of your favorite guests. You guys requested. I sent in my request to Phil Steele's people like a month ago, because when the Phil Steele magazine comes out, you got to get in line for Phil because he's so popular. He's doing radio shows all over the country. We got him for half an hour here on Buckeye Talk. He's actually based just outside Cleveland. So he's happy to join. And we will dig into everything about Phil's predictions for the Ohio State season. Um, but I want to do a little bit with you guys first. Again, we'll, we'll get to some of your questions. But I want to dig in some stuff right off the bat because, again, you guys like it when I get going right away. And don't beat around the bush, even though I want to talk about my vacation a little bit. Someone asked this question. I think it was my man, Sat 5 Over the next three years, what projects to be the strongest position group and the weakest position group for the Buckeyes? So, as I am wont to do on a rare occasion, I did a little research. I looked some of this stuff up. And I tried to come up with what I really think Ohio State's best position group might be over the next couple of years. And I shocked myself with one of the groups I'm considering because we're in a weird spot with this position group. And it's the offensive line. And the issue with the offensive line, and there was a lot we talked about with the 2019 recruiting class, and there's a lot we're talking about with the recruiting classes going forward. They're stacking guys up. We're talking about top-end national guys and some lower-ranked Ohio guys. We're talking about guys they grabbed late in the process last year that weren't necessarily part of the plan, but they had to get because they were short. But when you look, if everything goes perfectly, and of course everything always goes perfectly in college recruiting and college player development, they have a chance on the offensive line to just be putting like five dudes out there who are just incredible, natural offensive linemen. And as Ed Warner from Michigan occasionally reminds me, he likes to point out that offensive line recruiting is a lot of hits and misses. I argue with Ed that I think he missed some more than he hit on uh, late in his tenure at Ohio State. But I'm not here to talk about Ed Warner. I'm here to talk about guys like Wyatt Davis, Josh Myers, Nicholas Petit-Frere, Matthew Jones, Max Ray, Harry Miller, Luke Whipler, and Paris Johnson. Because those are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight players, eight Ohio State offensive line recruits, that if you look at them individual, their individual rankings nationally, not as linemen, but as overall players, Wyatt Davis, number 24, Myers, 53, Petit Frere, 7, Jones, who hasn't done anything yet, but still don't forget about him, Matthew Jones, 68, Ray, 121, Harry Miller, 30, Whippler, 61, Paris Johnson, 8. So 
Miller is in as the star lineman in that 19 class. Paris Johnson and Luke Whipple are committed for 2020 right now. I went through and I tried to figure out what this offensive line group might look like. We know in 2019, we're pretty sure it's going to be Thayer Munford, Jonah Jackson, the transfer from Rutgers, Josh Myers, Wyatt Davis, Nicholas petit Frere. 2020, if Munford comes back, then you think about Munford as a left tackle. If he's not back, if he goes pro, then you might be in a situation where as a true freshman, Paris Johnson is competing to start with someone like Max Ray. Meanwhile, your interior offensive line probably is Harry Miller, Josh Myers, Wyatt Davis, one way or another. Maybe Harry Miller comes up and takes that center spot and Myers moves to guard. Maybe Myers stays at center. But either way, that's an interior offensive line where their national overall rankings were 24, 30, and 53. And then you've still got Nicholas petit Frere as a junior at right tackle in 2020. Now you look ahead to 2021. If Paris is here, if Paris doesn't decommit, if he sticks by his Ohio State commitment, Paris Johnson's going to be your starting left tackle. If not in 2020 as a true freshman, it would be in 2021. You go Paris Johnson. I think maybe Josh Myers sticks around as a fifth-year guy. You have a chance to have Josh Myers, Harry Miller, and Luke Whippler on the inside. Again, Whippler's another top 100 guy. And then Nicholas petit Frere, if things go well, he goes pro. If not, he's a back as a senior as your right tackle. Those starters, and they've been really healthy on the offensive line for most of the recent era. Um, Brandon Bowen was an exception to that. Um, and, uh, my gosh, who did? Oh, Demetrius Knox at the end of last year was an exception to that. But they were remarkably healthy. You don't want to only have five offensive linemen you can rely on. But Urban Meyer, for much of his tenure, talked about we need more depth on the offensive line. But it really didn't matter because the guys were healthy. That top level... As much as we've talked about Greg Studrawa's recruiting issues at times and some of their misses and some of their late grabs, that top, top, top level of offensive linemen is really good. So when you're thinking long-term down the line, if it all goes perfectly, you have a chance to have like five NFL guys on that offensive line. And last year, you didn't have that. Malcolm Pridgen, not an NFL guy. Demetrius Knox, not an NFL guy. You know, it's just, it's Michael Jordan as the center. He's an NFL guard, not an NFL center. Um, Thayer Munford, probably an NFL guy. Isaiah Prince, borderline NFL guy. What you're looking at down the line, offensive line, it's weird for me to say, Jay Sat, and it's a great question, but it's possible that in the next three years, that offensive line, that upper crust of it, will be as good as any position group. The obvious answer to the other one for the best is, is receiver. Because when you think about the possibility that Garrett Wilson, Julian Fleming, and G. Scott are the top three guys who might be on the field together in, like, 2020, 2021, um, 2022. That's really good. And, again, they, they love to have rotation. Jalen Gill, as the slot guy, is going to work in there. They're going to add some more guys there. Jackson Smith works in there. But those top three Garrett Wilson, the class of 2019, and Julian Fleming and G. Scott, the class of 2020. That's high-end stuff. Um, I think, obviously, the, the defensive line... I actually have a couple questions about the defensive line because you have Zach Harrison as sort of a standout defensive end in the class of 2019. You have Jack Sawyer coming in 2021. You like some of the defensive tackles on the roster now. Tommy Togiai, Teron Vincent, guys like that. They do need to add a little bit there. There's some more guys they need to get there. Um in terms of top-end, top, top, top elite uh, depth uh, on the defensive line that is what they're accustomed to having. I'm not going to say that that's going to be a problem there, but I want to see some of that. 
I have questions about the linebacker group. It's funny, as much as I like some of the young, the first level of young linebackers, well, maybe I don't have questions. I like Toronto Mitchell, Kayvon Pope, and Dallas Gant, who are all second-year guys now. So they're going to be here for a little bit. We don't know as much about Craig Young, Tommy Eichenberg, and Cade Stover. Cade Stover is a big-time guy. I'm curious about them. I still think the secondary... <sighs> Man, I must be in a good mood. I must be in a good mood. It's possible that my answer to this is going to be... It looks like every position group is going to be the best position group, and no position group will be bad, because I have another point to make about a top position group. I'm in a good mood. I'm off vacation. I might be wearing my 12-0 glasses. You guys, eh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you feel about 9-3, and three, Doug. I'm not sure everybody loves 9-3, and three, Doug. <laughs> I think some people might be getting sick of 9-3, and three, Doug. You can call me that till I'm proven wrong. But I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little more like 12-0, Doug, today. Now, maybe not 12-0 in 2019, Doug, but I'm feeling good about the future, Doug. I don't know why. I'm just in that kind of mood. Come back from Disney. Got a little pixie dust in me. You don't want to know how, you don't want to know how it got there. Um, secondary, I think, is still going to be good. I like Tyreek Johnson at Seven Banks, right? Clark Phillips is another big get in the secondary. Um, I, I, Seven Banks and Tyreek Johnson are lined up. If you assume Arnett and Okuda are in their final years, Arnett certainly is. Maybe Sean Wade is, too. You never want to forget Sean Wade. I have an interesting point about Sean Wade. We have Phil Steele this week. We're going to have some more national college football guys on um, because Matt Hinton, who's a really good national college football guy, I think he's a freelancer right now, he had a list of top 100 college football players that I saw him put out, and there were four Ohio State guys on it. And I can't remember the order, but I know Chase Young was the first Ohio State guy. J.K. Dobbins was the second Ohio State guy. Justin Fields was the third Ohio State guy. And the fourth Ohio State guy, he was in the 90s, but this was his top 100 players in college football, was Sean Wade. We have talked about how important those slot corners are. Sean Wade, I want to get Matt Hinton on this show to talk a little bit about why he's so high on Sean Wade. Because I think sometimes when I'm thinking outside corners, I maybe forget about Sean Wade in that context. But he's so vital as a slot corner, and he certainly can play outside if it comes to that. Maybe if he stays after this season and Okuda and Arnett are gone, maybe Sean Wade does move outside. That was a really good ranking for Sean Wade, but but playing in the slot this year is going to be so important for them. I still think there's a good future in the secondary, although we need to see Jeff Halfley and these guys pull in a few more secondary commitments. Clark Phillips off the Buckeye Bash weekend was a big get, but they need to get a few more guys there. But overall, I think receiver is probably the best answer. For, for where they're lined up to have the best position group in the next three years. But offensive line is in there. And what about quarterback? Jack Miller and Kyle McCord in 20 and 21. It's just it makes you think, can they keep both these guys? Because these are guys who are both ranked. Clark, uh, excuse me, Jack Miller is the number two pro-style quarterback in the class of 2020. He's the number 71 player overall in 2020. And then stacked behind that, you have Kyle McCord, who's the number five pro-style quarterback in 2021. He's the number 51 overall player. So you ask yourself, are they going to keep quarterbacks in back-to-back classes who are both top 75 national guys? If they do, if they keep them around, that position group is set. You have a competition there. You have two guys right on top of each other, both who are pro-style guys, you'd feel really good about the quarterback position long-term. So if you wanted to have that as your answer for the next three years where you feel best, quarterback could be where you go. Where Where's the most uncertainty? I'm not sure where they're going at tight end after Jeremy Ruckert. 
right? We've talked about we think Jeremy Ruckert has big things ahead as a slot tight end this year. Um, they need to add probably at least two, two tight ends in this class behind him. They haven't added them yet. We're curious to see where that goes. And the running back position is very interesting. I think people have questions about the running back recruiting right now. Again, I was on a, a college trip with my daughter for a week. Then I was in Disney World for a week. So I am not on top of the absolute latest recruiting stuff. I know Bijan Robinson was in here as part of the Buckeye Bash weekend. I know Kendall Milton was in here earlier. And then took, taking his official uh, to Ohio State a couple weeks ago. And then he has gone on to his official visits in the SEC since then. A lot of people think um, that he may have something good going with Georgia. Um, they're going to get somebody, right? They're going to get somebody at running back, but they need to get somebody at running back. People liked Marcus Crowley this spring. That's the name you heard. But beyond J.K. Dobbins, you wonder about the future there. Some people really like Master Teague. Um, I, I think that's a question mark until they answer it. And and really, I'm I'm a little curious about defensive line. We know Jerry, excuse me, we know Larry Johnson pulls guys in. He's a great closer late in recruiting. But at this point, um, when you're talking about the level of the Bosa's and Chase Young and Sam Hubbard and Tyquan Lewis and guys like that, are they at that level with where they are now? I'm not sure. Yes, Zach Harrison. Yes, Jack Sawyer. You need to stack a couple of those guys. If things work out right with Zach Harrison, Zach Harrison and Jack Sawyer will have a year together. 2021, Zach Harrison will be a junior. Jack Sawyer will be a true freshman. That'd be a great defensive end pairing. Jack Sawyer is the number two overall player in the class of uh, 2021. And Zach Harrison was the number 12 overall player in the class of 2019. So my, my position of potential concern is defensive end, where in 2021, they might be putting two top 15 national recruits as their starting defensive ends. So what kind of concern is that? So listen, things are in good shape. I know I've been 9-3, and three, Doug, but I think that offensive line, that, that surprised me with that answer, which is why I like that question from JSAT to get us rolling here on the latest Buckeye Talk. And I know what you guys want is some Phil Steele, so I'm going to let us get to that now. But first I'm going to tell you one more little thing. I'm going to tell you one more little thing because I haven't been pushing it, and I want to push it a little bit. Um... It's our project text thing, and even though I was gone, I was sending out texts the last two weeks. Uh, I'm, now that I'm back, I had, I'll had i be honest, if you subscribe to the text, you know I haven't maybe interacted on an individual basis as much, answering individual questions, which is something I try to do a couple times a week to the people who have them. I haven't done that as much the last couple of weeks because I was gone, but my vacations are over. <laughs> my, vacations are, my vacations are over, so now I'm going to get back to... I was sending out the text. It's going to be more interactive, and I want you guys to get on this. This is um, Project Text. You can go to cleveland.com and find it. I'm going to, I've noticed that I think I don't have my pinned tweet. Do I have it as my pinned tweet anymore? You get a text or two per day. It's basically four bucks a month. Um, it's a little investment to get constant Ohio State insight and opinion. We break down recruiting, we break down the state of the roster, we break down Ryan Day, um, just stuff I'm hearing, stuff I'm thinking about. We're really going to ramp up. Obviously, it's going to get even crazier during football season. So if you haven't done it yet, the Big Ten meetings are in mid-July. They're less than a month away. I would suggest if you haven't done it yet, early in July might be a good time to pull the trigger on this. See what you think as we're building up to the season. In July with Big Ten meetings, we're going to get a ton of information out of that. And then we're going to get a ton of information once camp starts. And we're talking about the Buckeyes and being on the field and interviewing people on a regular basis. 
You just want it. I'm going to give you guys information first. We're going to come back and talk about some of the similar stuff on this podcast. I'm going to write a bunch of stories. I'm going to write a bunch of columns. But if you want the interesting little tidbits as they happen, boom, right in the new bike. How's that, boss? Bang. Do you hear that? Let me see if that click is registering. Let me see. Ooh, that's a little spike. I hope I'm not hurting your ears. Ready? This is how you get a text. Whoop. Can everybody snap? My oldest daughter can't whistle, and it makes me wonder, can everybody snap? Can everybody whistle? I might have to do a, a, a tweet question, Twitter question next week. Can you both snap and whistle, or only one or only the other? I want you to try the text thing. Try it. Try it for a month in July or August. See what you think. Project text. Uh, you can find it on cleveland.com, or you can go to, uh, let me see, I forget the thing. Project text. And my campaign, I have a specific campaign number. It's Project Text, P-R-O-J-E-C-T-T-E-X-T dot com, Project Text, slash campaigns, slash 28. That'll get you right to me. So anyway, try it out. See what you think. Four bucks a month. Give it a try. If you like it, keep going. If you don't like it, uh, text stop, and it'll stop. Okay? So, But now, I know you want this. We're going to come back with more of your questions. JSAT kicked us off. But now we're going to get to Phil Steele. I did ask a couple of the questions you guys asked specifically for Phil. Um, we also just had discussions about Ohio State, about Michigan, about the Ohio State schedule, about Ohio State's rankings and different things. Here's a good half hour talking with the guy who puts out the best preview magazine in college football, Phil Steele. Joined by the illustrious Phil Steele here on Buckeye Talk. He is the guest I think maybe all year that people ask for the most. So it happened a couple of weeks ago that people were saying, are you going to have Phil on? Are you going to have Phil on? And I said, of course, we're going to have Phil on. So, Phil, thank you so much for your time. Hey, a real pleasure, Doug. And uh, in case the listeners don't know, you and I both serve on the uh, Football Writers Association All-American Committee together. Uh, there's a lot of Phil giving great opinions and me saying, mm-hmm. So that's how that usually goes. But that was fun last year, Phil. Yeah, definitely. I enjoy it every year. All right. So so we have a lot of good stuff. I have your magazine in my lap, as most college football fans do by this time of the year. Um, Phil Steele, how many years have you been doing this uh, college football preview magazine now? Yeah, we are to the silver anniversary, believe it or not. And that surprises me a little bit. That it's been 25 years, 25 years for the magazine. The first one that came out, Doug, it was black and white. It was on newsprint. It was about 188 pages and only covered 88 teams. Didn't even cover the Mac, uh, the two full pages like we do now. Now we're up to 352 pages, full color. It looks like one of those uh, professional type of magazines. Back then we were more like the, the type of magazine you sold out of your trunk. <laughs> no, this is the kind of magazine that's front and center in every uh, every bookstore in the area and anywhere you can find it. So uh, grocery stores, it's everywhere. So Phil, Thanks again, and I want to dive right in. The thing that I think a guy like you can help us do on Buckeye Talk is our listeners are very smart about Ohio State football. We talk Ohio State football all year round, but I'm always interested in the context because we just don't talk about Michigan and Penn State and Michigan State and Alabama and Clemson and everybody else that Ohio State compares to. And you, this this whole magazine is context. So I want to start with some of your individual position rankings that I found so interesting, and I just want people to know your thought process. For instance, you have the Ohio State quarterback room ranked 40th in the nation, um, and there are a lot of really good quarterbacks out there. We know Justin Fields has a lot of potential, 
but he did not play very much at Georgia. And I actually think people maybe underestimate how many good returning quarterbacks are out there in college football. Can you explain your thought process, how you've decided on Ohio State's quarterback room at that ranking? Yeah, absolutely. And when I do a ranking for the uh, each position, it's not based on what they've done in the past. It's what I think the unit will be this year. And when you look at Ohio State and you look at the history of Ohio State, when they've had a mobile quarterback, that quarterback is putting up good running numbers as well as decent passing numbers. And I think Ryan Day can develop him. Justin Fields is a guy who's 6'3", 225. He's got the arm. He's got the mobility. I think he's a good fit for Ohio State's offense, which is going to look quite a bit different than last year's offense when Dwayne Haskins was thrown for 4,800 yards. But I think as you watch Ohio State this year and see Justin Fields play the game, you will see he will be one of the top 40 quarterbacks out there, and I think he'll be guiding uh, one of the better offenses uh, in, in the college football. Phil, how would you rate overall the quarterback position in college football with this year with Tua and Trevor Lawrence back, with guys like Shea Patterson, Nate Stanley in the Big Ten, just just overall, how is the quarterback position? And then in your mind, as you've evaluated college football over the past 25 years, this is an obvious question, but how important is the quarterback position to a team having great success? Yeah, and we've seen the quarterbacks have been a major factor in most team successes, and, and we saw it again last year. You know, Tua and then Trevor Lawrence taking over at Clemson. Remember, Clemson came up short against Alabama because they didn't get great quarterback play. Then Trevor came in and gave him that great quarterback play and elevated him to the title. And uh, so I think quarterback play naturally is huge. Uh, when you look at this year's class, wow. I mean, a player like Justin Herbert, he could have come out and might have been the first overall pick in the draft that he had come out. Uh, he opted to return for a senior season. And then the intriguing thing is a couple of transfer quarterbacks. You look at Kelly Bryant going from Clemson to Missouri. And then you look at Oklahoma where they get uh, Jalen Hurts from Alabama. And I got to tell you, Doug, I was talking to Lincoln Riley this year, and I said, Coach, you made me a liar last year because I was so confident that I liked Kyler Murray, but there's no way he could match Baker Mayfield's numbers. And then he goes and outdoes Baker Mayfield's numbers from the previous year. So I'm not going to say Jalen Hurts can have that type of season. Lincoln Riley has proved to be somewhat of a quarterback whisperer. But then the other names you touched on, you know, Shea Patterson of Michigan, Adrian Peterson, or uh, of uh, Nebraska, Georgia's got yeah right, and uh, Jake Fromm of uh, uh, Georgia. So they're loaded at the quarterback position this year, and even some players like uh, J.T. Daniels of USC, who struggled last year with a 14-10 ratio, with the receiving core he's throwing to, he could put up some big time stats. I'm really impressed with this year's quarterback class. And that's the thing I think that's important for this context again. Because um, we've been talking about your rankings a little bit with with some of the Ohio State fans here, and some people were surprised to see the Ohio State quarterback room that low at 40th. Um, and obviously, again, Justin Fields has great potential. But part of it is it feels like there are a lot of teams that have talented but also established quarterbacks, whereas maybe Justin Fields is a guy with great potential but who just has not shown it as much. So going into a season, you're more uncertain about it. And also, another thing, Doug, you also have to look at is depth. And yep. I know Ohio State's got a couple of transfers there, and Gunnar Hoke and Chris Chuganoff, but let's face it, if those two guys are starting for Ohio State, there could be some trouble. You take a look at a team like Michigan. Uh, they, they're, they've got Shea Patterson as their starting quarterback. But if something happens to him, 
I'm confident in Dylan McCaffrey. I think he could do a great job. He's got probably the best running ability of the quarterbacks. Something happens to him. They got Joe Milton. He's 6'5", 234 pounds, uh, very capable redshirt frosh, one of the top quarterbacks coming out. Something happens to him. They got Cade McNamara. He was my number 20-rated quarterback out of high school. So Michigan has great depth at the quarterback position. Meanwhile, if something happens to Justin Fields, that number 40 ranking sort of disappears. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And uh, RNP Bucks fan is one of the questions we got on Twitter, sort of alluding to that. And I think that's part of it, Phil. You're not just evaluating the starting quarterback. You're evaluating these position groups and the rooms. And we've seen a lot of examples where teams need that backup quarterback. And certainly, again, we've talked a lot about that on this podcast. I think Gunnar Hope can be solid in that role. But if Justin Fields is not good, you're not a national championship contender. If he's not healthy and good, you're not in that level. Um, and some other teams maybe could withstand an injury a little bit better. Phil, overall, um, just as you evaluated Ohio State this year, when you looked at their talent, and I I know you have separate top 40 rankings, um, how you think a season is going to break down based on schedule and a bunch of other things, and then just your power rankings, which are just how good you think a team is. You have Ohio State sixth in both of those rankings. When you just looked at Ohio State, just overall, how did you feel like they fit into the national context? And did they seem like the typical Ohio State team under Urban Meyer to you? Or did you feel at all in looking at them that maybe they were a little bit below that level this year? Well, you know, I don't think last year's Ohio State team was your typical Urban Meyer team. It starts on the defense. You know, last year's defense Wow, how many big plays can you give up in the course of one year? 403 yards per game, 25.5 points per game. That's not the type of defense that's normally played at Ohio State. And then you go back to the Urban Meyer legacy. Uh, His offenses never had a streak of more than two games without 200 yards rushing. Last year, there were eight games where Ohio State failed to top 154 yards rushing. So I think last year's team was an atypical Ohio State team, one that if you followed them during the course of the season, very few times would you come away from the game going, wow, that was impressive. I mean, they struggled to get past Penn State. Indiana gave them a game. Minnesota gave them a game. Purdue blew them out. Nebraska took them down to the wire last year. It was not your typical Ohio State team. So I think Ryan Day... The fact that he was able to get four games under his belt as a head coach last year is a plus. And I'm going on a little leap of faith on the defense. What I saw of the defense shook me a little last year, but I like the overall talent they have. And i got to think they're going to play better defense this year. I rank each of the three units in my top 15. When you're evaluating them on the hoof, Ohio State's got the players. I think they will play better defensively. And with a mobile quarterback, they probably get back to being more of that Urban Meyer type of team, which is rushing for 200 yards per game, something they failed to do over half the time last year. Phil, specifically on this, and then I want to dig down a little more into the, the some of the rankings and the specifics, but in your overall picture, again, this context that I value so much, Ohio State clearly is at the top of the Big Ten still, and we'll get into some Michigan stuff in a second, but do you feel like Ohio State, when you look at the overall depth of talent, is close to the level of Alabama and Clemson and Georgia and Oklahoma and these top national teams? Or are they not at that level right now in your mind? Well, um, if, and it's a big if, Doug, if the defense plays up to the talent level, unlike last year, then yes, I think they they are capable of being right up there with the big boys. Uh, And and Ohio State is, of course, a big boy in college football. That's That's a gimme right there. But, yeah, the recruiting's been good. 
you go back to the second string, the third string, they're loaded with what I call VHTs or very highly touted players, and they probably are just as deep. Now, you've got to get better performance on the field defensively before I started putting Ohio State into that class, but I think we should see it this year. But, yes, the talent is there to, to uh, be on that level. I'll tell you, Phil, one of the things that's hard for me to evaluate, especially with this defense, is I don't know who's going to play, especially at linebacker. Again, you you talked about in your position rankings, you have Ohio State's defensive line eighth, their linebackers 13th, their defensive back sixth. That's high rankings for those groups, but I'm not sure which linebackers are going to be on the field because they have Tuff Borland and Pete Werner and Malik Harrison back, but I wonder where Tarada Mitchell and Kayvon Pope and Dallas Gant and some of these other guys fix in. So I fit in. So I think it's hard on some level to evaluate some of this Ohio State talent because you don't know what the rotations are going to look like, even though they have, I think, you know, eight, nine, ten starters back on defense, depending how you look at it. I'm not sure all those starters are going to be starters, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I agree with that 100%. In fact, that, that's part of the reason that uh, I have the linebackers up there is the fact that these three guys that are returning, while Borland and Harrison, both are NFL type of prospects, uh, Mitchell, uh, Browning, Gant, Hilliard, Stover, these guys are all top recruits coming out of high school. It's much like with Alabama. With Alabama, you don't start making plays, then boom, you're going to the back of the line, buddy. we got another guy ready to step up. And I think that had me higher on the linebackers and than we would have seen based on the linebacking play that we got last year. I think there are players that will take over a starting spot or two, and that competition can only help. I want to delve into the, the schedule a little bit, and I want to start with the team that we've talked about a fair amount on this podcast, and that is the team that you have as the number one most improved team um, in your projections for this season, which is Nebraska. Can you Can you let our Ohio State fans know your thoughts on Nebraska and, and why that's a game that I've targeted going to Lincoln that I think is going to be really tough for Ohio State in the first half of the schedule. Yeah, when you take a look at Nebraska, it was a pretty tough fit last year. Scott Frost was taking over a Mike Riley coach team. Now, Mike Riley did what you shouldn't do at Nebraska, which is come in and throw the football all over the yard, stick with the option, stick with the mobile quarterback. And at Nebraska, they had passing personnel, and that didn't really help. Now, what Frost did is he brought in Adrian Martinez. And Martinez, a quarterback last year, was a good fit for the system. But let's face it, the rest of the offense wasn't. They had to change blocking schemes on the offensive line. Uh, they had more receivers than they had running backs. And it was a, an atypical year type of game year for Nebraska. Now, they were better than 0-6 at the start of the year. They should easily have beaten Colorado. They could easily have beaten Troy. They didn't have Martinez for that game. They gave Purdue a game. They gave Wisconsin a game. They could have been better than 0-6. But what I liked about them was they got a lot better as the season went on. Second half of the year, they went 4-2. and two. The offense went from averaging 23 points per game to 37 points per game over those final six games. And now they're in the second year of the new systems of uh, Frost and the different offense, which I think is a big plus. And defensively, uh, you look at them, they're not going to be the black shirt defense that they used to be, but they're going to be better on defense. And that's good because the last two years they've allowed 430 yards per game. What I really like about Nebraska this year, besides the fact it's the second year of the systems and they're going to be a stronger team, is the schedule. They toss Michigan and Michigan State out the door, bring in Indiana and Maryland a couple of winnable games. And there's really no dominant team in the West. And of the top teams in the West, Nebraska gets most of them at home. I'm talking about Northwestern, Wisconsin, and Iowa. So they could very well go from 4-8, and eight, which they were last year, up to perhaps even double-digit wins this year. And if you're an Ohio State fan, heck, you watch the Nebraska-Ohio State 
State game last year. In Columbus, you know, Nebraska gave Ohio State everything they wanted and then some last year, and now they get them at home. That's a very dangerous game, and it will be a confident Nebraska team because they're going to be 4-0 as opposed to a team that plays Ohio State with a, a poor losing record and a much more confident team. That I think can be very well could be a 4-0 versus 4-0 game, Ohio State at Nebraska uh, on September 28th. However, I've also been talking about the idea that I think Ohio State's schedule is sneaky hard this year. I hadn't talked much about this team, but the number two team on your list of the most improved teams is Florida Atlantic, which is the opener for Ohio State this year. That's not typically you know, a, a, a game that, that Ohio State fans would be worried about. But I remember when Ohio State set that game, I thought, well, Lane Kiffin's there when they set this game like three years ago. He's never going to be there by the time this this game comes to pass. Lane Kiffin is still there. You get a team like that with a, with a coach who can coach, and you get that Florida talent down there. You have Florida Atlantic, I think, number 62 um, on your list of overall teams. That's a good, solid middle-of-the-pack team in college football. How good is Florida Atlantic, Phil? You know, they're good. And when I wrote the magazine, I thought uh, DeAndre Francois from Florida State was going to be transferring in there, which really made him a dangerous threat. B.J. Emmons, their running back, is uh, was my number five-rated running back coming out of high school. He originally signed at Alabama. And, you know, the talk is they lose Devin Singletary, their running back from last year. But the coaches feel they now have SEC, ACC talent at running back. They brought in some big-time recruits. They add in a B.J. Emmons. They've got some dangerous receivers. The offensive line looks solid. Uh, Junior Diaz at center, NTN at guard, Walton at tackle. So this is a good Florida Atlantic team. Uh, when I talked to their offensive coordinator, Charlie Weiss Jr., went over the team with them. He was happy with both Nick Tronti and Chris Robeson. I think they'll get improved quarterback play defensively. Uh, they're not quite up to the standards you want, but there'll still be a, an improved defense this year. They have six starters coming back. I have them as a team that uh, potentially wins the CUSA East, and I think they will this year. Remember, just two years ago, this team was 11-3, and and they were blowing teams out at the end of the year, including Akron, 50-3 to in the bowl game. Uh, but I'm still, I, I've got a, I'm not as, I'm not as worried about that one anymore now that Francois not there, Doug. I, I would have Ohio State, uh, probably favored by about 17 points. All right. So let's talk about the other big non-conference game. You have Cincinnati 27th in your power poll. Um, we know Luke Fickle's going to have the Bearcats ready for this Ohio State game. Is there a chance? Does Cincinnati, when you look at their roster, does their level of talent give them any chance in that game against Ohio State? Yes, I love the job Luke Fickle's doing at Cincinnati and, and chatting with him every year. I mean, last year we talked about quarterback, and we knew that he'd have to replace uh, the quarterback that he had, and Hayden Moore and Desmond Ritter stepped right in, did a good job. He's a dangerous threat, both running and passing. 20 touchdowns, just five interceptions. Deep core running backs. Michael Warren's a guy who's at 218 pounds. He's a bruiser. He's got great hands. He's durable. And, uh, you know, the best player on offense in the last year was Jared Dokes, who got banged up and missed the entire year with injury. And he's back. You look at that offensive line. Uh, Coach Pickle feels that both tackles, Chris Ferguson and James Hudson, are NFL caliber tackles. Morgan James is a solid guard. And defensively, these guys were good on defense last year. They allowed just 302 yards per game, 17 points per game. They got seven starters back this year. In fact, all three units rank in my top units in the front of the magazines and in front of the magazine. And the special teams are solid as well. I think Cincinnati probably uh, knocks off UCF October the 4th. That's how good of a team they are. 
So, yes, Ohio State fans should be concerned about Luke Fickle coming in. And uh, does he know anything about Ohio State? A couple of things, I think. Yeah. No, he's going to be ready for that game. That's going to be a really interesting game. Um, uh, I wanted to double back real quick. We had a question from one of our listeners, Nelly 97 a loyal listener, who said, who noted your comparison of Justin Fields to a young Cam Newton in the magazine. It's it's hard sometimes with these young quarterbacks as they're developing to, to figure out what they're going to be. But what was it about Justin Fields, Phil, that, that maybe led you to that kind of comparison with Cam as a guy who we know can throw it and also proved he can be a powerful runner? What are that comparison? Well, I think it would have to be the, the size. Um, uh, would probably be the, the main thing that you look at, the size, the running ability, and the throwing ability. And uh, trying to figure out where that was written in the magazine, because I, I don't remember writing that one, but uh, – because uh, if I'm going to compare somebody to Cam Newton, it would be Auburn's quarterback, who looks like Cam Newton as far as size and mobility goes this year. He's probably the, the biggest clone to it. But uh, I just read through the quarterback write-up real quick. I didn't see that reference. Gene Neely? Man, Gene Neely, I've got, I'm going to double-check this, Gene Neely. If that's not right, then you're in trouble. Um, all right, Phil, so we'll move on to another question then. Here is the thing that I think a lot of people have been waiting for, and I think this is a very important point. Um, you have Michigan ranked ahead of Ohio State in the Big Ten uh, standings projections this year. Um, but there is something that you note that I think is important for people to realize. You say, while I have picked Ohio State higher than Michigan in the magazine for 12 straight years, this is the year it changes. And we have questions from a couple different people uh, uh, who, who sort of are Ohio State fans who are aggravated by the fact that sometimes in the preseason People have high expectations for Michigan, and here we are in a world where Ohio State won seven straight against Michigan. Michigan has not competed at Ohio State's level in that game, yet everybody keeps picking Michigan. You're not that guy, Phil. You're saying here, all, for 12 straight years, you've picked Ohio State ahead of Michigan, yet this year is the year that you're picking the Wolverines. So people need to know that context, that you are not the I'm high on Michigan in the preseason and then they fall short, guy. You're only doing this now. What is it now, this year, Phil, that leads you to believe that this might be the year that Michigan gets past Ohio State in the Big Ten? Yeah, and that's funny, Doug, and you'll appreciate this. Uh, when I do radio shows in Michigan for the last decade, they're like, well, you just pick Ohio State over Michigan every year because you're from Ohio. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know. No, I don't. It's just because they're more talented. They're going to win the football game. And so I've had to listen to that for over a decade, Doug. So it's, uh, And that's not the reason I switched. The reason I switched is, you know, if you watched Michigan last year for between the Notre Dame and the Ohio State game, they were dominant in almost every single week. Meanwhile, Ohio State was not. And, you know, Michigan was a four-and-a-half-point favorite on the road for a reason. They were they basically played better football last year than did Ohio State. Now, not on that Saturday. Ohio State was a home underdog, well-motivated under Urban Meyer. I don't know when the last time they were a home underdog. But Ohio State just uh, got the better end of Michigan. And then Michigan in the bowl game was a little depleted and got blown out by Florida. But I like the defense that they have. And while Don Brown loses some players, there's no doubt Don Brown can craft an outstanding defense. You go back to two years ago, he had one returning starter on defense. They allowed just 18.8 points per game, 271 yards per game. That was amazing to me, and they've got that defense once again. I've rated number seven in the country, and offensively, I really like the addition of Josh Gaddis as the offensive coordinator. He comes over from Alabama, who is the co-OC, and he's bringing in the spread offense, and this is legitimate. 
They are switching to the spread offense. No more fullback, two tight ends. Run the ball up the gut on every play. This is Shea Patterson getting put into the offense he was born for. He's a quarterback that can throw on the run. He can run the football, and I think he's perfect in the spread. They've got dangerous receivers. Nico Collins, Donovan Peoples-Jones, and Tariq Black missed most of last year. He's back from injury. I think those guys actually get utilized. I have Michigan's offensive line rated number four in the country, and their special teams, which is something people often overlook. I have them number seven in the country on special teams. So they really are a complete team. And the big thing I like about Michigan is probably the schedule. Three toughest games on the schedule are Notre Dame, Michigan State, and Ohio State. They get all three teams at home. And while Jim Harbaugh's been knocked, can't win the big one, can't win the Big Ten, blah, blah, uh, he's 24-4 and four at home, and I think this year's Michigan team is good enough to take care of those games at home, and that's why I picked them to not only get finally get past Ohio State, but actually win the Big Ten and make the playoff this year. My preseason analysis is so rudimentary. It is 0.1% of your preseason analysis, Phil. But my shorthand is always, and I'm not the only person who does this, I look at the offensive line and the defensive line, and I look at the quarterback. And I try to figure out, do they have some experience there? Do they have some talent there? This is a comparison that our listener, Austin Robinson, pointed out. You have Ohio State's offensive line, 38th in your preseason rankings. And as you mentioned, you have Michigan's fourth. As you evaluate the Buckeyes and the Wolverines, is that one of the primary reasons that that maybe you're, you're talking about this could be the year for Michigan, that there's so much, you have such belief and there's that level of experience with Michigan while Ohio State's offensive line is replacing four starters. How important is that in, in your evaluation of those two teams? Yeah, it was big, and that's and I agree with your uh, listener there in the fact that I always equate offensive line and defensive. If you're strong on the offensive defensive lines, the other positions usually going to come along. And when you look at Ohio State this year, only one returning starter on the O line. They've got players back with starting experience, but just 38 career starts are back. Meanwhile, at Michigan, they've got four returning All Big Ten starters, 89 career starts back. And I think they're in an offense that's going to give them even better numbers than what they've been producing. You know, and last year they were pretty good. They averaged 4.8 yards per carry, uh, only gave up 23 sacks on the year. So this is an offensive line that is star-studded, a lot of good players in there, and experienced. And, and to what you mentioned about the Michigan defense, Phil, to lose Chase Winovich, Devin Bush, and Rashawn Gary – that does say something about their depth of talent, right? That your people are still high on this Michigan defense when they lost three frontline NFL guys like that, but they have guys lined up to replace them. Yeah, and you go back to 2017. I, for one, said, you know what? Michigan's losing all these guys. They have one returning starter on defense. I, I, I don't know if I've seen a team in modern college football recently that's only have one returning starter on D, and yet they give up 271 yards per game. And, and this year's has five. You look at Quiddy Pay up front at the defensive end spot. Carlo Kemp is a stud inside a defensive tackle. Aiden Hutchinson at defensive end, another quality player. Lavert Hill. Uh, shut down cornerback. I think he's uh, he's one of those that's really locked in for the upcoming year. And uh, they add in a guy like Daxton Hill, the team's top recruit. He was my number two rated defensive back out of high school. He could come in and take that free safety job. Devin Gill at linebacker. They they have a lot of good talent uh, coming back. And and coach uh, their defense coordinator uh, Don Brown said that uh, the linebacking core he called it an unbelievable linebacking core. So that's Don Brown talking. He's he's had a few good defenses. Yeah. I'll get two more, Phil, and then I'll let you go. You, again, in the power poll ratings, 
you have Michigan 5th, Michigan State 14th, Penn State 16th, Cincinnati 27th, Wisconsin 28th, and Nebraska 31st. That's six teams. That's half of Ohio State's regular season schedule in the top 31 in your rankings. I've talked a lot about, again, I think it's a sneaky, tough schedule. Overall, how good do you think the Big Ten is right now? Compared to what you've evaluated in your 25, year, 25 years of this magazine, what's the level of the Big Ten football play at the moment? Uh, I think it's good. Of the five power conferences, I'm going to go way out on a limb here, Doug, and I'm going to call the SEC the best Ooh. conference uh, if I can. Yeah, I know it's a shocker. Uh, but number, number, number two in the magazine last year and number two in the magazine this year is both Ohio State, or excuse me, the Big Ten. And when I look at the Big Ten, there are four legitimate teams uh, in the East, uh, in Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State, and uh, Penn State. And Michigan State's sneaky. Remember, their offense was all banged up last year. That offense has got nine starters back, and there were high expectations for the offense coming in, and it got a really, really good defense. But then on the other side of the coin, I can make a case for any of six teams winning the West, going all the way down to Purdue. You know, you never discount what Jeff Brown does there. And we saw last year what Jeff Brown can do with when they played Ohio State. So there's six really good teams in the West that can win it, four really good ones in the East that can win it. And I like the overall depth and talent of the Big Ten. I rate it the second-best conference. All right, Phil, last one. As you evaluate college football teams, when a, when a team like Ohio State loses Urban Meyer, how much do you think that big-time established coach matters in college football? And it's a ridiculous question because the coach is everything in college football. The players constantly change. The coach is the one that stays the same. But how much was your evaluation shifted that previously Urban Meyer was up there with Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney and the very best coaches in college football and Ryan Day is an unknown? How did you factor that into your evaluation of Ohio State? Yeah, it did definitely factor in. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you even take a look at a team like uh, Kansas State losing longtime Bill Snyder. I mean, Bill Snyder pulled more upsets than any other coach. I think he was more, one of the most underrated head coaches out there. And his stepping aside, even though they replaced him with a really good head coach, you have to expect a little bit of a downturn. And, and you have to look at that with Ohio State. Now, the good news is, generally when you bring in a first-year head coach, Doug, there is going to be a learning curve. They've got to learn the players' strengths and weaknesses. Players have to learn new systems. It's a whole thing. But Ryan Day's been there. He was a head coach for four games already. Uh, and we'll see what the recruiting does. I know the recruiting is down a little bit this year. We'll see what that does in the future. But, yes, that, that did have a play in the, uh, the overall call for Michigan there winning the East. We could not recommend more highly Phil Steele's college football preview. Uh, it's the best magazine out there. Um, I'm privileged to get a sneak peek at it um, early on each year. Uh, love what Phil does. And my last question, Phil, when do you take a break? When is your vacation time? Because I know you work all year on the magazine. You put it out. Then you do a million radio and podcast hits to talk about it. When is your break, Phil? This is it right now, Doug, You know, because magazine season's done. Football season's not for a little bit. I'm only working like 50 hours a week right now. I'm just doing a bunch of radio shows. It's not even like working. So I'm spending a lot of time with my daughter, who's 13 and not a teenager yet, which is a good thing, and uh, really enjoying my time right now. So, yes, definitely June, July, June and July are my favorite two months of the year as far as uh, taking time off and, and not being under big deadlines. Well, Phil, we appreciate you spending some time with us here on Buckeye Talk. Love your work. He's an Ohio guy. I remember, gosh, Phil, must have been must have been like 12 or 13 years ago I came up to your office and did a story on you. 
Um, and uh, it's been a great privilege to follow your career and read your magazine. So thanks for everything, and, and uh, we'll talk down the line. Sounds great, Doug. I always enjoy our conversations and uh, look forward to being on the Football Writers uh, All-American Committee with you again this year. Sounds good, Phil. I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Doug. All right. So thanks to Phil Steele for that. And listen, I I got to apologize. Gee, Nilly, I, I sold you out in the moment, brother, because I didn't know exactly what was happening. But here it is on the final page of the Phil Steele magazine, his 2019 Heisman Trophy favorites, 13th on that list behind Adrian Martinez, who you guys I know are sick of hearing about. But listen, that Nebraska quarterback is going to be really good. Um, here are the Big Ten people ahead of Justin Fields on Phil's Heisman list. He has Jonathan Taylor of Wisconsin third. He's not going to win. Jonathan Taylor is not going to win the Heisman. I was so right about Wisconsin, so I was so right about Wisconsin being overrated last offseason. Boy, did I like that. Boy, did I enjoy being so correct about that. I think Wisconsin's going to bounce back this year. I do think Jonathan Taylor is still like overrated in terms of Heisman stuff and in terms of game-breaking running back stuff. He's going to put up numbers because he's a running back at Wisconsin. But he's not... He's not um, Ezekiel Elliott, he's not Adrian Peterson, he's not he's not a game-changing Heisman Trophy winning running back. So don't bet on him. Shea Patterson is fourth, the Michigan quarterback. Adrian Martinez is eighth. I'm wearing headphones now while I do this. Again, the big boss suggested that. And it makes me want to do my radio voice. Thirteenth. Justin Fields is thirteenth as the fourth highest Big Ten candidate. And this is what the blurb says in the Heisman part of it. Dwayne Haskins was a first-year starter in 2018, yet still threw a Big Ten record 50 TD passes to become a Heisman finalist. Fields, comma, who resembles a young Cam Newton, comma, might have more potential, especially athletically. The Georgia transfer is an ideal fit for Ryan Day's Buckeyes system. So, Nilly, you were right in asking Phil to elaborate on uh, the Cam Newton comparison. You know, it's a, it's a lot of just... Um, it's just a lot of like obvious stuff, right? Like he's big, he can run, and he can throw. Um, I don't know that Cam is a great classic thrower of the football, but he certainly gets the job done. He has a strong arm at times. I think like his release and that kind of thing is not necessarily ideal. But Cam Newton is a is a was a college football absolute stud and is an absolute stud in the NFL and gets it done at quarterback. So actually, I think that's where, to me, I think a Cam Newton comparison makes sense in that he's so um, he's so dynamic, and at any point, even in a play gone wrong, something good can happen because there is arm strength, there is um, throwing ability that can come out of nowhere, and then there there is the ability to be in the pocket and lead a team down the field in a drop-back style, but there's also that just great natural size that's hard to bring the guy down and uh, some great natural running ability. And so I think anybody that you want to compare, any great um, athletic quarterback who absolutely has an arm that can zing it, which Justin Fields does, and we talked during spring how K.J. Hill on the first day of spring uh, was saying that, KJ, that Justin Fields has a stronger arm than Dwayne Haskins. He throws a harder ball. Doesn't mean it's a better arm or he's a better thrower, but he has a good arm. There's been a, sometimes questions in the past with 
athletic Ohio State quarterbacks about their arm strength. There's no question with Justin Fields' arm strength. I still just think it's his tendency at the moment to maybe be better outside structure than inside structure. But that's not unusual for a young quarterback. And so I think as Justin Fields develops within structure, he's going to be dangerous outside structure on the move, running to throw, straight out running. That's going to be there. And that's a great thing to fall back on as you get used to being the big bang boom kind of quarterback that Dwayne Haskins was who could lead a team down the field. So Listen, there's upside with Justin Fields. There's just not um, the level of certainty, I think, with Justin Fields that I felt uh, sort of going into last year with Ohio State. So, you know, you know where I stand on Justin Fields, and that's the thing with Phil. Um, Phil Steele knows something about all 130, however many there are, Division One college football programs. He knows a, actually. He, I, I take it back. He doesn't know something about all of them. He knows a lot about all of them, and so those hundred and twenty nine other teams, he knows far more about them than than I do, and far more than you do. Every single little nitty gritty thing that we talk about Ohio State here on Buckeye Talk, maybe Phil, you know, he doesn't talk about Ohio State only all day every day. But I will tell you that Phil absolutely knows Ohio State in the Big Ten because he's an All American voter because he's based outside Cleveland. When I did a story over a decade ago, I'm going to go do another story on Phil. He and I talked about that after we uh, ended the podcast. But it's amazing what this guy has done just sort of on his own. You know, he has people uh, that work for his company that, that, that he has hired. But really, he basically every year produces a 352-page college football preview magazine to great deal on his own. I'm sure he would give credit to a lot of other people, but the, the, the content creation is his. And then he does stuff during the year, keeping up on college football. So I'm just a, I'm just a Phil fan and I'm okay with that. Hey, I can be a fan and let's talk about being a fan. This happened to me on vacation. And so I just asked you guys about it really quickly on Twitter before the podcast. I, I sent this out Tuesday night. It's funny. I was in the Orlando airport uh, Tuesday night, my flight was, we were scheduled to leave at 11 p.m., which is late. We booked it for 9.45, it got moved back, but then we didn't leave until after midnight, which is too late to fly. Although I did watch that Anna Kendrick, Blake Lively movie on the Southwest flight. Good movie, little, uh, yeah, good little twisty movie. Um, but I sent out a question and somebody, there was a Buckeye Talk listener at the airport, waiting at the terminal, who is also on the flight because he is a he has business in Orlando and flown down for the day. So shout out to Jason who came over and said hello, who tweeted at me after I tweeted. Love running across you guys out in the world, uh, and then I shared a shuttle to the parking lot with Jason. So I did tweet this out because I this happens to me. I go to Disney World a lot. I love Disney World. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to apologize for that. I see Ohio State stuff everywhere. And I don't know if I'm like a psycho and that I just, I can't help but see Ohio State things all the time. Um, Or are there actually more people that wear Ohio State stuff than other teams? So I said, do you make a point to wear gear of your hometown team? 
when you're on vacation to represent your squad to the world? And 78% of you said yes. 22% said no, because I absolutely guarantee I cannot go through a day at Disney World without seeing at least an Ohio State shirt, usually multiple, multiple, multiple. And I was thinking about this the one day in particular, and as I was thinking about it, I came across a family from Cleveland. The dad was wearing a brown shirt and a brown hat. The daughter was wearing an Ohio State shirt, and the grandpa was wearing an Ohio State hat. So I stopped them. And I just said hello very quickly. I should have gotten their names and asked them more about it. But, you know, they wanted to go to Toy Story Land. They don't want to talk to some weird guy um, about why they're wearing Browns clothes and Ohio State clothes. But what I found out, I didn't realize this, is that you guys go out of your way on vacation to wear your clothes. So it's like, I know there are going to be, when you're at a place where there are thousands of people, there are going to be some Ohio State fans in that group. But I'm noticing you because it's not coincidental that you are wearing your Ohio State clothes. You're wearing them on purpose. Chris Zelina said it was cool as heck running into people from Ohio in France and Browns fans in England wearing his stuff when he goes out. Brad Howard said, I'm in South Carolina this week and have worn some kind of Browns attire each day. Gotta represent everywhere. Justin Dubes had some interactions with random Tribe fans in Boston, Cavs fans in North Carolina, and Browns fans in Vegas over the past Vegas over the past couple years. Jim Zerbach, I wear my Cleveland versus the World shirt and my Buckeyes gear to Hilton Head. An older gentleman came up to me in Charlotte and said that he taught Chris Smith of the Browns in high school. George of the Land on Twitter said I hung a Browns flag in Cabo, Mexico, the week we beat the the week we beat the Falcons. So that's George in Cabo. It's like his sliding glass door out into the beautiful Mexican uh, waterfront with a Browns flag in it. Nate Ardle. I lived in Ann Arbor for 17 years and now live in Eastern PA and Penn State country. You bet I've taken the opportunity to represent the Bucks. My four kids, all born at University of Michigan Hospital, also went to Ohio State, also went home in Ohio State onesies. One of them, Andrew Ardle, also a loyal listener, is now a sophomore at Ohio State. So people do this. Blackball says you got to represent. Evan Charn, always wear Buckeye gear on vacation, strikes up so many conversations. Dave Andrews, yes, my wardrobe consists of dirt racing, browns, and Buckeye t-shirts. If it ain't one of those, then it don't matter. James Baker says, yep, I represent our, our local breweries too. And Weimer19 says, I meet some of the best people while wearing my browns hat while traveling. Um, and uh, Callie, my friend Callie, who moved to Atlanta, um, says she agrees with others about the good, good conversations started by wearing Ohio State t-shirts. But my happiest such moment recently was wearing a Columbus Blue Jackets hat in Tampa two weeks ago. A guy at a gas station said, yeah, you deserve to humble brag by wearing that. Your team killed us. So I didn't know that. Because listen, I actually don't, I, when I am in Disney World, I wear Disney World shirts. Which actually is kind of weird because I rep Disney World back in Ohio all the time. I like, I like stand by my park walking around in Ohio. But then when I'm in the park, I also wear park t-shirts. So I don't wear uh, team clothes. Um, but I'm glad I learned that because I did not know that previously. That that uh, I just thought it was like, wow, I have Ohio State on the brain constantly to the point that like I cannot get away from Ohio State people. Not that I'm trying to get away from you, but it's like you're everywhere. So anyway, um, that was eye-opening for me. And someday, 
I always say I'm going to do a story of like taking a picture of all the Ohio State gear that I see when I'm in Disney World. And then I think to myself, I'm in Disney World. I don't want to be working. So maybe I will never do that story. More questions from you guys. Cynical Negro says, how good, this was a question for Phil that we didn't get to. How good does he think J.K. Dobbins is compared to other running backs? Uh, Cynical Negro saw a Mel Kuyper mock that had him as the first running back off the board. Um, and then for, for me, Cynical Negro asked, Demario McCall gets 3,000 all-purpose yards this year, right? Ha, ha, ha. Um, someone else asked a running back question, and I, w- I want to talk about the running backs a little bit. Let me see here. Um... Shaq Harrison, my guy, said, what style of running back best suits the new Ohio State offense, a more downhill runner or a shiftier running back? So let's talk about this a little bit. And I had sent out a bunch of, bunch of texts last week, if you guys are on the text message uh, project that I promoted earlier. I sort of went through the fill ratings because, again, I had an early copy of the magazine. And I just think it's a great way to talk about stuff is to bring in that national context. Phil has Ohio State 7th in the running back rankings. Um, He has Wisconsin 1st, that's Jonathan Taylor. Georgia 2nd, that's mostly DeAndre Swift. Uh, Clemson 3rd, that's Travis Etienne mostly. Alabama Alabama 4th with Najee Harris and a couple of true freshmen. Uh, Oklahoma 5th, do I know Oklahoma's running backs? Kennedy Brooks and Trey Sermon. Um, Boston College is A.J. Dillon. Everybody loves him. And then J.K. Dobbins. So I think that J.K. Dobbins is a better NFL prospect than Mike Weber was. And I know there are some people who love Mike Weber, and I didn't dislike Mike Weber. I just like I thought Mike Weber um, was good at taking what was there. I think J.K. Dobbins is better at making something for himself. And so um, there were times last year when, when Mike Weber would get through a hole, and I think he does have like better maybe breakaway speed than J.K. Dobbins. But I think the best style of running back, to get to Shaq Harrison's questions, is a running back who's going to get north and south. Um, Ryan Day wants to use spread offense formations to spread a defense out sideline to sideline, and then he wants to run an NFL offense within the confines of the spread formation. So, listen, I'm not an X and O guy. We'll get Jake Burns back on to talk about some of this stuff. Jake Burns, who is, if by the way, if you haven't been noticing, has been doing more and more and more Browns content for us. He's doing stuff on a daily basis on the Browns right now. So if you care at all about the Cleveland Browns, beyond the great coverage from Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Lobby, and Scott Patsko, make sure you are checking out Jake Burns, breaking down sort of X and O type analysis on the Browns basically every day at cleveland.com right now. That's huge. But what I'll tell you is that I think in that situation then, you want to spread that defense out. You want to make them have to defend with some motion. You want to make them have to defend the threat of the quarterback run to the edge. You want to make them defend the threat of that H-back, maybe a tight end H-back. You want to make them defend some of those bubble screens, some of those Jalen Gill, K.J. Hill short plays that can pop big that we saw so much with Paris last year. And then you want to hit them right up the middle with you spread them out, and then you get J.K. Dobbins going north-south real quick. And I always thought that J.K. just is really good at slipping through holes. And it doesn't have to be a gigantic hole for him to get yards. I think he can twist his body and get through a little hole and then get to the second level. And I just always felt that Mike Weber 
if a hole wasn't there, he'd bounce it sometimes. And I feel like Ohio State's going to attack with the passing game more on the edge. Doesn't mean they're never going to run wide, but I think sometimes when they run wide, it's going to be more of that option look, right? But I think when you're going to do some straight handoffs up the middle or you're going to do a read where the read is to the running back up the middle, you want a guy who gets north-south quick with a burst. I'm not worried as much about the breakaway speed because I want him to get to the hole and get through it or get to the hole and get sideways and slither. And I think J.K. Dobbins does that really well. And I think J.K. needs to run with confidence, which I think they're gonna, he's going to have more of this year, not sharing the ball. Again, we talked about that a lot in the spring. Tony Alford and J.K. Dobbins both admitted J.K. was in his own head last year. He's trying to hit the home run so much, he hits the home run less. But I'm not worried about the home run. I'm not worried about the home run in this Ohio State offense because you don't have to go 80 yards in one play because you know you have the ability to, to put together drives because you have a belief in the system and in the players who can execute it. So I think the style of running back is north and south, and I think J.K. Dobbins can have a really productive year. And though we, we talked about with Phil – all these individual quarterbacks, right? Trevor Lawrence, Tua Tagovailoa, Sam Ellinger at Texas, Justin Herbert at Oregon, Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma, De'Eric King at Houston, Shea Patterson, Adrian Martinez, Jake Fromm. That's the top nine quarterback rooms. And so when you see that Justin Fields is pushed down and the depth of that quarterback room, as Phil said, is part of why they're ranked 40th, you can see the guys ahead of them, right? And it's like, what are you, you going to argue that Justin Fields should be adjusted, ahead of Justin Herbert right now? No. But you see Ohio State's running back room seventh, and that basically is based on J.K. Because there's nothing that you're going to see from Master Teague that's going to garner a high ranking right now. DeMario's a question mark. Cynical Negro knows that I have a soft spot for him. But the guy missed all the spring. We don't know where he is. We don't know exactly how he is going to fit. So I think it's going to be a little less than 3,000 all-purpose yards. But I think J.K. has the ability to be one of the five best running backs in college football this year. And again, when you put together, and we've talked about it before, you put together the Mike Weber and J.K. Dobbins numbers from last year, and they rank as the best running back in college football. So there's a second aspect of this I want to talk about. And I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what – I don't know at all. I don't know. I have not watched film on B. John Robinson or Kendall Milton, the guys who appear to be the top two running back targets for Ohio State right now. And I know Zachary Evans is is another big-time guy uh, who's in that group. So I can't tell you exactly what kind of running back they are and exactly how they would fit. I I will tell you that Ohio State needs a running back in this class. They need a big-time running back. I'm very intrigued by Kendall Milton. And again, this is other people's reporting, and there's a lot of really good recruiting writers who cover the Buckeyes. Jeremy Birmingham from Letterman Row we know is fantastic at this. Uh, Taylor Lehman is someone who's been doing a really good job for 11 Warriors. You guys read these people. It's okay to go read other people. We know that. There's some really good recruiting coverage out there. Bill, Bill Kirillik has been doing it forever for Bucknuts. Um, we, we know the good recruiting writers out there. We do our own recruiting coverage, but we also acknowledge people who do a good job on that. I know there's been a discussion, and, I, and I've seen people talk about it, that is, is there an issue getting a running back in this offense? That somehow is B. John Robinson or Kendall Milton or Zachary Evans are uh, reluctant to pull the trigger on this. And people, you guys have asked me that before, and I've said no, 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 because they are going to run it. And I think the actual issue is at the moment, people are forgetting or, or in their analysis, they're looking 
at J.K. Dobbins and Mike Weber as individuals without thinking about the fact that really they're one guy. That was one role, and they, they combined for more than 2,000 rushing yards. So if your question is, well, how does a tailback fit into this Ohio State offense? And again, that was with Dwayne Haskins being as as the least amount of running quarterback that you could have in an offense like this. Justin Fields is going to be more of that. So if you got 2,000 yards combined from Weber and Dobbins, maybe you're not going to get 2,000 yards alone from Dobbins this year, but you're going to get a healthy, healthy dose of that. And I think you're going to see an offense. I think the bigger thing, if there is an issue that's holding back guys from committing to Ohio State as a running back, I think it's the perception of that share of the, the split load last year that led to reduced numbers. And I think J.K. Dobbins, if maybe, maybe, there is a lag in getting a running back recruit in 2020. I think J.K. Dobbins will eliminate that issue this fall. And that he will eliminate that for the 2021, 2022, the classes down the road. I don't think they'll have, a tr- having, have trouble getting a running back. And maybe these top three guys that they're involved with, maybe they commit elsewhere and they miss out on them. And they end up getting somebody else as a running back in this class. Maybe those guys commit somewhere else, and then Ohio State can flip them for December or even for February for the late recruiting deadline. Maybe they can flip them by saying, look, hey, look, look what J.K. did. I think J.K. Dobbins is going to prove what a workhorse running back can do in a Ryan Day offense. I do not think it's going to be an issue. And I think they got to run it. And so I'm just, I, I never thought it would be a problem. And if it is, and I know other people have suggested that, and, and, I'm not telling you I have inside information on the running back recruits right now. I'm not, I mean, I know it needs to happen, but until Kendall Milton, B. John Robinson, and Zachary Evans are all off the board, I'm not going to worry about it for the Ohio State running back um, recruiting. I think Tony Alford is a good running backs coach. I think Tony Alford is a good running backs recruiter. And I think they just need what happened last year with Jack Miller and Kyle McCord. And Julian Fleming and G. Scott and all these guys is they got evidence of this passing offense, what it can look like. And you saw what happened when they got the evidence. I think the running backs are going to get evidence this fall. And if they feel like they don't have it now, I think I feel like they will get it at some point. And so um, even if it results in a delay for a year, I don't I just don't think Ohio State's going to have trouble recruiting a running back in the long term. And um, I still think they'll get one of these guys. I still think they'll get Robinson or Milton. Maybe Evans is more of a reach, but maybe if, if that's who's the, the guy they go to, if the other two go somewhere else, I think I still think people are going to want to play in this offense. Brian Cody. I don't know if you've asked a question before, Brian. If not, welcome from Loudonville, New York. Um, even if you have, welcome again. Um he said, "What what's the ceiling, right? What is the the top end if we see the best of Justin Fields and Ryan Day this year? Let me get the actual question because I just clicked off of it by accident. Um, let's see. Do you guys like the new uh, microphone, by the way? I'm feeling good about it. If Day and Fields end up being the real deal, what's the ceiling for the 2019 Buckeyes? Like the national championship. That's the thing about this is I, I don't think the ceiling, when I've talked all about this in a, a nine and three possibility, I don't think the ceiling has changed for Ohio State. 
And I asked Phil about this, and I want to get other national people on in the next couple of weeks to talk about it more. Is Ohio State right there with Bama and Clemson right, 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 right now? No, because they have a first-year coach. The recruiting is certainly very close. Ryan Day is respected as an offensive mind. We need to see Ryan Day as a leader. We need to see how this defense comes together. We need to see a revamped defensive coaching staff. We need to see what kind of job they do. Um, Ohio State was uh, unbalanced last year. Uh, Too unbalanced. The committee, I think, got caught up in their defensive deficiencies. But still, you need a a better defense than that. I don't think you have have to have a top 10 offense and a top 10 defense. I think... You know, winning convincingly is winning convincingly. Convincingly, Their problem was they didn't win convincingly at times. But I think you can give up a lot of points and a lot of yards and still win convincingly in an offensive system, in an offensive world. But their upside, I think, is the same. Their, their upside is go undefeated, win the Big Ten, make the playoff, and win the national championship. I think when you are filled with four stars and five stars, that's absolutely your upside. I just think there's a, a lesser chance of reaching that upside. A, because it's a new coach and Ryan Day has never done it. B, because it's a new quarterback in a new system. And although Dwayne Haskins was a first-year starter last year, he had much more underneath him in terms of being established at Ohio State. So I think those are the two things. And then the third thing is the uncertainty on the defense of exactly who's going to be on the field. Because we have a new defensive staff that we're dealing with and trying to analyze them. As we try as we try and sit here and try to analyze the defense Part of what I don't know is I don't know what I'm analyzing. So it's like I know I know what I'm analyzing in Larry Johnson. I'm not 100% sure what I'm analyzing in Al Washington or Jeff Halfley or Matt Barnes. Greg Madison, you guys know what I think about Greg Madison. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure which linebackers I'm supposed to analyze. I'm not sure what the rotation on the defensive line is exactly going to look like. I'm not sure exactly if, if Damon Arnett and Jeffrey Okuda are going to play every snap, but at the outside corner spots, I'm not sure exactly how often they're going to be in the bullet look, how often they're going to have a second true safety back there, who it's going to be. Is Josh Proctor going to play? Is Jordan Fuller going to be on the field all the time? So we need to learn some of this stuff in camp because I, I like the possibilities of some of the guys who are going to be on the field, but I don't know who's going to be on the field. So the upside remains the percent chance of reaching the upside, I think, is what is lessened in my mind for this year. And again, I just want to repeat, because I'm in a good mood from being on vacation. My analysis of the 2019 Buckeyes is my analysis of the 2019 Buckeyes. I am assuming and anticipating that my analysis of the 2020 Buckeyes will start to look more like the Urban Meyer era, because we'll know more about Ryan Day, we'll know more about Justin Fields, right? And and then a lot of the uncertainty right now will be gone. And there's just more uncertainty than usual right now, which gives me a lesser chance of reach, reaching the upside in my mind. Whoop, whoop, boop. Chris at C underscore Keck. I thought this was great. I thought this was a great question because I got a I, I got a sense of this too, and I'm going to couple it with another question. After watching the social media and the reports coming out of the Buckeye Bash recruiting weekend, I was struck for the first time that it felt like Ryan Day's program. Can't put my finger on it. Maybe it's culture. Maybe it felt fresher. How would you articulate any difference? And let me give you a second question from our friend Shelby Goldman, too. 
Beyond being a nice guy and an offensive innovator, what intangibles is he bringing to his new gig? Is he an awesome motivator? Does he demand excellence? Is he super competitive, etc.? That's a question about Ryan Day. Yes. The answer is yes. I thought the same thing, Chris Keck, that in moving away from Friday Night Lights, and if you guys were 100% up on this or not, instead of the Friday Night's event that they usually did as sort of their big giant um, July recruiting event, they're in a, we're in a quiet time now from, I think, June 24th to July 24th, um, where nothing's going to be happening much in recruiting, no contact or visits or that kind of thing. Um, but typically what, what they had done under Urban Meyer, and Urban Meyer really started this in Florida, and I think a lot of you guys know this, is this Friday Night Lights event where they would have um, recruits in on a late July weekend, and the big thing would be like a camp uh, atmosphere in the stadium under the lights at night that fans could attend and watch. And it really gave these guys a chance to flash um, in the stadium that they were thinking about calling their home. And that was a really big deal. And a lot of teams, a lot of programs copied that from Urban Meyer. And Ryan Day turned away from that and actually turned it into back when Urban Meyer was doing Friday Night Lights and putting on a show, Brady Hoke was doing a barbecue. And this Michigan barbecue, uh, there would be got kids who would go to the Ohio State Friday Night Lights event and then go to the uh, the Michigan barbecue on a Saturday the next day. And I always thought um, that was a stark contrast. Um, let's see. Okay, let me look at this. I'm going to read a story about it because I'm not an expert on it. This is a 2016 story. Actually, Rich Rod started it. This is a 2016 story about the barbecue at the big house. It sounds, this is uh, by our friend Matt Wenzel. It sounds hard to believe, but the Rich Rodriguez era is still alive at Michigan. Well, at least one aspect of it. Michigan on Saturday will host its barbecue at the big house, an annual recruiting event that Rodriguez started and has been continued by Brady Hoke and Jim Harbaugh. It's an opportunity for the Wolverines to bring recruits from across the country to campus for food, FaceTime, and perhaps verbal commitments. So that was from 2016. So I always thought to me, the, a barbecue is more of like a down-home thing, right? Your fingers get sticky and you're shoving stuff in your face. And that's a different vibe than like come ball out under the lights and be on a stage. Be in front of fans. Be on the stage of Ohio Stadium. Hey, come to the big house and have barbecue. I thought that was an interesting way to differentiate Ohio State and Michigan at that time. Um, especially Brady Hoke. And, and I don't think it's just like a bigger guy kind of thing. Just because like Brady Hoke like looks natural with, with barbecue on his fingers. As do I. That is not a shot. I don't think it's a bad thing to look comfortable with barbecue on your fingers. For Ryan Day to turn away from Friday Night Lights and turn toward a barbecue is slightly indicative to me of turning to a slightly more down-home feel. And I'm not saying that Ryan Day is not about the big stage, and I'm not saying that Urban Meyer was not about a down-home feel. I'm just saying which way do you lean. I think a lot of you guys would agree. Trussell, Jim Trussell, more of the down-home feel. Urban, the bright lights, the show, Right? I think maybe Ryan Day is getting a little more down home. And again, I'm going to give credit, and I can't remember exactly who it was. It might have been Taylor. 
Lehman from Eleven Warriors. Someone had tweeted, might have been Mark Givler, who's another guy um, from Buckeye Grove, who does a great job with recruiting stuff. I apologize. I should look it up. Should I look it up? Hold on. All right, I looked. I can't, I can't find it. I can't find the person I want to credit, and I apologize for that. I hate when people do that. They say, oh, I read this great story. I can't remember who wrote it. It's like, what does that mean? Someone said that they've heard from a lot of recruits the word genuine with Ryan Day. And so my point is this, um, and I think it's even in the, in the phrasing of your question, um, Shelby, and, and uh, beyond being a nice guy and an offensive innovator was the beginning of your question. Like, what are his intangibles? And I think, like, those are the two intangibles. <laughs> like, it's like, other being other than being nice and smart, what are your good qualities? And it's like, well, mostly being nice and smart. So, listen, the offensive innovator stuff is real. That's how Urban Meyer got rolling as an innovator of the spread offense. All these guys, the best. Nick Saban is a defensive genius. Bill Belichick's a defensive genius. I mean, like these guys, these guys who are great coaches and great recruiters, they start off by being great X, X and O's guys. The guys want to go play for because they have schemes that they, the players know that in, they can succeed in. So this is the trend, and this is the story I want to do before the se- before the start of the football season. This is the trend. Offensive innovator is like the best thing that a coach, that a head coach can be in the NFL or college right now. If offensive innovator is like the first two words after your name, you're ahead of the game. So Ryan Day is that. That's how he's viewed. Um, and then the second thing, like a nice guy, if he's like a nice, normal, barbecue, family dude... I think that is what he's going to sell. And I think he's going to try to sell just like Urban Meyer did, but in a different way. When Urban Meyer came in the room, your eyes went to Urban Meyer. He was the guy in the white cowboy hat. Um, To some people, he was the guy in the black cowboy hat. But he was in the cowboy hat. He came in on a horse. He had spurs on. I think maybe Ryan Day doesn't ride a horse. And I'm not sure if he owns spurs. He might not even own a cowboy hat. And when Ryan Day comes in the room, I'm not sure that you notice him right off the bat. But when he comes over and says hello, then you get to know him. And so I think that's what they're selling right now. And I think they're selling a little bit less of the show and a little bit more of the barbecue. And I think that harkens back to the Jim Trestle era in some ways. There are not a lot of head coaches who can do the show like Urban Meyer could do the show. Now listen, Urban Meyer started Real Life Wednesdays. Urban Meyer was often praised for the family atmosphere at Ohio State, okay? Urban Meyer also demanded excellence and pushed people very hard. I think Ryan Day will make things a little more comfortable for everyone. He is using a lot of the same tactics and a lot of the same structures to search for excellence, to reward excellence. I'm not sure he's going to light the fire under your butt that absolutely demands it, but I think there are different ways to get excellence. There are, there are ways to, to motivate excellence in a way that, that you're almost afraid to not be your best. And I'm not saying that Urban Meyer was, uh, was about fear. I'm saying that Urban Meyer was about the, uh, which is part of why Ryan, Urban Meyer, it's a big part of why Urban Meyer is not the head coach at Ohio State anymore. Because the uh, eventually got him. And he admits that. But it's also the only way he knew how to coach. Now, within that family atmosphere, Real Life Wednesdays, your future, viewing you as a person, not just as a player, all that stuff in place. We know it. Ryan Day is just different. So I think, Shelby, um, the answer is in your own question. What are his intangibles? Being a nice guy and an offensive innovator. And, And to the point that Chris made, 
I think viewing the change from Friday Night Lights and the show to a barbecue is a very illustrative way to view a shift from the Urban Meyer era to the Ryan Day era, and I felt it a little bit as well. Even while I was on vacation and gone, while that recruiting event was happening, I felt it too. Urban Meyer was not part of that weekend, nor should he be. He's not the head coach anymore. He's an assistant in the athletic department. But nobody, I don't think anybody was looking for Urban Meyer that weekend. And that's what you want. You want Ryan Day and Tony Alford and Brian Hartline and Larry Johnson and Jeff Hatfley and Al Washington and Greg Studrawa and Kevin Wilson and everybody and Greg Madison to be able to recruit on their own out of the shadow of Urban Meyer, and it felt to me like on that big weekend that happened. I'm try- I think I was a little long, but I think I made a variety of points, and uh, I spoke into a new microphone, so I don't think that was too much rambling. Hey, Scott Duda, good question. How can we keep all these wide receiver recruits? This is a case of early commits realizing late in the cycle they need to be the man at their own school. The Buckeyes losing a few. I don't. I don't think so. Actually, they, they when you look at the receiver depth chart, and it's a great question, and it actually can apply to as like as, as excited as people are. It should be about Jack Miller and Kyle McCord. Like if you had to bet me right now, do Jack Miller and Kyle McCord both finish their eligibility at Ohio State? And again, it's not fair to do this. It's just the world that we know that the NCAA is, is tightening up some of the transfer stuff um, at the moment. I think maybe not. And that's not a shot at Jack Miller or Kyle McCord. But when you have two guys who are like top 50 national recruits, top 75 national recruits who are stacked on top each other of each other as quarterbacks in consecutive classes – Somebody's going to win the job and somebody's not. And like that guy who's not going to win the job might be too good to stick. So it's a reasonable question to ask about the receivers as well. But here's the thing. KJ Hill, Austin Mack, Ben Victor, CJ Saunders, four receivers on scholarship for this season who are seniors and who will be gone. No juniors. Sophomores, Jalen Harris and Elijah Gardner are both redshirt sophomores. Chris Olave is a true sophomore. Jalen Harris and Elijah Gardner have not yet become members of the rotation. Of course, maybe they will, but I'm not sure that I would count on that. Freshman, Jalen Gill, Cameron Babb, who's battled injuries, Garrett Wilson, Jamison Williams. Coming in, these four kids who are part of this freshman class. There is great opportunity and so these 2020 kids who are committed, by the time that they get here, okay, there's room for all of them to play. So I don't think when you talk about Julian Fleming as the number five recruit in the country as receiver, G. Scott, the number 66 national recruit, Jackson Smith, the number 89 national recruit, um, I just and then the the next kid up is a 2021 kid who popped. Um, that is uh, Jaden Ballard is the number 110 national recruit in 2021. You need those guys again if you're operating in a world where you think you're going to play six receivers. There's a big difference between playing six receivers and one quarterback. So I think it's a great question, Scott Duda. But I think you could see a world where. In 2021, maybe Chris Olave has gone to the pros. Maybe. Let's say that he is. That's Jalen Gill, 
Garrett Wilson, Jamison Williams, Julian Fleming, G. Scott, Jackson Smith. Those are your six receivers. So, like, those are your guys who are all committed right now, and you have a path for all of them to be playing, for Fleming, Scott, and Smith to be playing in their second year here. Um, and you know what? They're, they're, they could almost play next year if they're ready. If the 2020 guys are ready, they can play because you're going to lose three seniors from the rotation, and C.J. Saunders plays a little bit as the fourth guy. You're going to lose those guys right now. And so even the idea of in 2020, if it's Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jamison Williams, Jalen Gill are four. Julian Fleming and G. Scott could be five and six, and Jackson Smith is right there competing, just like Cameron Babb is if he gets healthy. So I think it's a good question. I'm always on the lookout for that stuff, Scott, because I think you have to be smart about it, and you have to be realistic about it. We've talked about I hate putting kids' names on transfers, but in a world where we're constantly talking about transfers in and out, and they haven't had a ton leaving, they've, uh, you know, getting Jonah Jackson on the offensive line, getting Justin Fields at, at quarterback, um, but also, you know, we projected a quarterback room that completely blew up. So, you know, when you look at recruiting, you have to also be realistic. And so, Scott, I know what you're saying with that question about trying to keep them all, but that's the one position where I think they can. And I think maybe they'll add a fourth guy at receiver in the 2020 class, but that Ballard is already in 2021. Um, you're getting, you can stack guys there. You can st- and they're just they're so shorthanded. They have so many seniors and no juniors at receiver. They just they need to go heavy at that spot, and that's why I think they can keep them all at least in this in this cycle. Another question from Scott: Can they keep getting elite running backs if the emphasis is on quarterbacks and receivers? This is what we talked about earlier. It's still going to need to win a game in the snow in Minnesota in November one year to get to the Big Ten in Indianapolis. Um, can't we have a team built for one? You can't have a team built for one style of play and not the other. So he's saying you can't have a team that's just built to win in a dome in Indy but can't get to Indy because you're going to lose in the snow in Minnesota. Um, JT Barrett ran pretty well in the snow in Minnesota. And so I, I do think this, and I will I, will, I equate it less to weather and more to situations, but there were times last year the idea of um, – it's third and two, and you have to pass. I'm not sure that's the world you want to live in because you can throw, you can run a perfect route, throw a perfect pass, and have something go wrong. Guy drops it. On third and two, if you make a perfect block, if you make two perfect blocks and a perfect cut, you have the first down, right? I think they do need to be able to run situationally better than they did last year. And so as they go forward with Jack Miller and Kyle McCord, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But with Justin Fields, I think they'll be okay because Justin Fields is going to give you enough of the quarterback run, I think, to make that work. Um, that we joked last year that like a, you know, a three-yard pass to K.J. Hill became your J.T. Barrett quarterback draw equivalent. And sometimes you want to be able to snap it to a guy and tell him to get a yard or snap it to a guy and tell him to hand it to another guy and go get a yard. And they didn't do that. I don't think they believed in that enough last year. And so again, Scott, I am, I am in agreement on the context of the question um, in the specifics of it, you know, with Ohio State's talents, they'd be a, they better be able to win in the snow in Minnesota, no matter what the situation is, right? You can't you can't let that happen. And honestly, I mean, people do like to talk about um, 
bad weather in the Big Ten. Actually, the thing that comes up is the wind. That's the issue. I mean, we've seen enough enough games where the balls going sideways um, because the wind's blowing it. You have to be able to run because the the wind is the thing. That, climate change. Like, I wish I was joking. <laughs> But it's like I don't even know if people have to worry about snow anymore. But like the wind is a real thing. And on the days when uh, you can't throw a pass because the wind's affecting it, you've got to be able to run. So going forward, I think they need to sell this offense to a running back. I think they should be able to. But yes, when possible with a running quarterback as well, but certainly with a reliable top 100 national recruit as your running back, you need to be able to get those yards and you need to find a way to do it within a scheme that allows you to run block, allows your offensive line to run block effectively to not be thrown off by um, RPOs and that kind of stuff that messed them up last year. They sort of have to get that figured out of, um, and they got it figured out in the second half of last year, but they basically got did it by getting away um, from the run pass option. Because the offensive linemen were too confused on the run blocking and pass blocking, blocking uh, part of it, I think they'll get back to just some more zone read stuff with the quarterback and the and the running back both running. And the other thing is, I just think you need to run to make your offensive lineman happy. No offensive lineman, especially in college, um, when you're not making millions of dollars, you don't want to pass block all day. Sometimes you've got to be able to lean on somebody. So you've got to run enough to keep them sharp and keep them happy. So I agree, but I think they should be able to do that. Also from Scott Duda, who he just asked good questions. Scott Duda asked good questions. Your pessimism has me accepting losses to Northwestern, Nebraska, and Michigan. Can you be more positive coming off vacation so I can be happier this summer? Thanks in advance. So I did not. I came in with a new microphone. We have exciting things happening. There's going to be exciting things, new exciting things happening on the Ohio State beat. Maybe more people. Whoop. Did I say that? Whoops. Whoop. Uh, maybe more bodies, maybe more bodies covering, uh, helping us cover Ohio State here at Cleveland.com. Hmm? Hmm? Big stuff ahead. We're, we're, we're thriving, baby. So it's not just my vacation talking. It's also good things happening uh, for my company that has me fired up. So I do not view my 9-in-3-ism as pessimism. I view it as possible realism. So um, I do think, though, we have like three podcasts before the Big Ten media days. Um, what day is it? Is this the last one in June? This is the last one in June. And then we have, um, let's see, 17th, 10th, like the 3rd of July, we'll try to do a national podcast, the 10th of July, then the 17th of July is a Wednesday, I think. And then the Big Ten media days are that Thursday, Friday. So we, we possibly could. No, we won't delay it. We'll do a preview of Big Ten media days that week. But I want to do some more national stuff. But I also want to do like a very heavily uh, optimistic podcast. So maybe we'll get some super optimistic people in here to talk about the Buckeyes. Because I do think there are reasons to be optimistic. I just want to give you guys uh, the other side of it as well when I can. Visual Ambassador at Viz Ambassador. How do players feel about fans tweeting at them during recruiting decisions? Do you think they actually read the replies to their top five schools, for instance? Does it persuade them one way or the other? I feel like OSU fans are particularly bad or good about it. Um, listen. This, and I say this, to, I've said this a million times and it, because other people have said it and I stole it from them. Other than choosing a spouse, um, and maybe potentially like the decision to have children or not. Um, 
The decision about where you go to college is one of the most important life-altering decisions that any person will make. So these athletes who have these great opportunities in front of them where they have multiple great choices that could work out fantastically, um, they're not going to pick a school because of tweets, okay? No matter how much fans tweet at you, there are academic considerations, there are getting to the NFL considerations, there are geographic considerations, there are the relationships with your future teammates and your future coaches, there's the stadium you're going to play in, the TV networks you're going to be on, um, the opponents you're going to play, what your uniforms look like. Fans tweeting at you is so far down the list of what might make you choose a school because there's a way to absorb the passion of the fan base is something that matters. But I think just like with real life, Twitter is not an accurate representation of the passion of the fan base, just like Twitter is not an accurate representation of the real world. It's a, it's a weird prism. It's a weird faux representation of the real world. And so it's a weird faux representation of fandom. Because there's a heck of a lot of people who are going to come out on a Saturday and clap for these kids who aren't tweeting at them on, on, on a regular basis, okay? The only thing I think can happen is a negative interaction. And I think people can be either overbearing in an attempt to be positive or just an outright jerk face. That could turn a kid off because a lot of recruiting, and I was it was funny, I... Um, Again, I love Disney World, and I was interacting with an Ohio State staffer uh, a few weeks ago because he was talking about studying um, the Disney model of business. And this actually allows me to talk about Disney World in a way that uh, makes me tingle inside. Uh, he was talking about the Disney way of doing business, and that perked up that he was studying that um, to help him in his job. And that piqued my interest because I've always contended that what I like about Disney World is the way mundane, everyday things come together to create magic. And what I like about Disney World is that it's efficient, it's clean, um, it's um, the lines are well constructed, um, there are good variety of food options. Like, I just have a happier feeling in my body that the workers, I think, are give more care um, to the customer than the average amusement park. And all that combines to give me a feeling of magic when I'm at Disney World. I feel great. And it's a lot of little mundane things that make me feel great. And I was uh, communicating with this Ohio State staffer that a lot of that could apply to recruiting. A lot of times, young athletes think it's just a feel, but actually it's all these tiny little things that combine to create a feeling. But it's actual tangible things, right? It's, it's, um, it is a uniform. It is the way that you interact with your coaches and future teammates. It is the locker room. It's why they have a waterfall in the locker room. You think the locker room is cool. Well, the locker room is efficient. You have good space. There's nice wood paneling. You have room to sit down. The chair is comfortable. It's ridiculous. They have a barber chair in there, right? There's all those little things because you want to create a feeling of magic for a recruit. And so I think a negative interaction on Twitter can puncture the magic because there are so many other things that can create a positive feeling 
But if you're in the end, a lot of guys, it's just a gut feeling. You just feel good about a place. And if somebody was a jerk to you on Twitter, whether you want it to happen or not, that can linger with you. Or if multiple people were, or whatever. And that's somehow, I don't think it happens very much, but I think it is far more possible for an interaction to turn a recruit away from a school than it is for any kind of Twitter interaction to turn a recruit toward a school. So I think recruits might say in the moment, hey, it's cool to get all this love um, from fans on Twitter, but I think actually all fans can do is hurt the cause of their school by interacting on Twitter because honestly, with all those other things, you want your mom and dad to be able to come see you play. You want to succeed in your life on and off the field. What a fan tweets you is not going to be more important than that. So what do players feel about fans tweeting at them? I think they think it's fine right until the moment that they hate it. And I think in the end, a lot of them end up hating it. So be careful out there, people. Uh, Did you guys see my new profile picture? Nikki Under said he likes it. Um, There's a sign at Disney World at a pizza restaurant that says, like, you got the dough, we got the cheese. And I put my hand on the H and it says, you got the Doug. Get it? Get it? All right. One more question here on Twitter that I want to get to. Ben McGue. This is an either-or question that you guys like to pose sometimes at Ben McGue, 730. 9-3 and beat the school up north to spoil their season but not make the playoff? Or lose to Michigan, Harbaugh faith restored, and maybe skip into the playoffs some other way? I think I'd take 9-3. and three. <clears throat> So that's just... Um, it's a fascinating thing to think about. And... I think part of the answer is um, in the ESPN thing a couple years ago, I think was it Jalen Hurts when he was the quarterback at Alabama and uh, Charles Barkley made a bet and um, the the loser like had to wear the jersey of the other school, right? And then Jalen Hurts did a thing where Auburn beat Alabama that year So 2017, right? Yeah. 2017, Auburn beats number one Alabama um, 26 to 14. Number six Auburn beats number one Alabama 26 to 14. But then Alabama still makes the playoff and wins the national championship. And so Jalen Hurts um, wears the Auburn jersey and then throws the backpack over his shoulder um, of with the national championship trophy in it. And that to me, right, so they so Alabama beats Georgia to win the national championship in overtime. And that almost to me was like the final answer to the age-old question of what, of whether you would rather lose to your rival and win the national championship or beat your rival and not win the national championship. And to me, the idea of like, okay, cool, you beat us, but we won it all. Like, although it can go in reverse, and I'm sure on this podcast I've said it the opposite way. You know what? I think I have said it the opposite way. Of like, hey, you won the national championship, but we beat you. 
And it's like, yeah, but we won the national championship. And I think in a world, in a college football world where a loss is more acceptable, um, back in the day, it was so hard to win a national championship with a loss. Now, you're usually going to have a loss during the year. And so, yes, you don't want it to come to your rival. But I think I would rather say, you know what? We're a great team. We lost to our rival. But then we got our stuff together and we won it all. I just think that's better in this world. So much is predicated. I don't think it takes away from the rivalry. So much is predicated on the playoff and the national championship that Ben McGue, I'd rather, I think if you're Ohio State, you'd rather get in the playoff with a Michigan loss than go 9-3 and three with a win over Michigan. Now, I think it's possible because our NP Bucks fan, Ryan, jumped in and said, it's not even a debate. He wants the win over Michigan. Okay? Wait. Oh, wait. But which way did he say it? He said it's not even debatable, but I can't understand which way he said it. Here's what I think is possible. And then we're going to get to some uh, email questions, and uh, I want to talk about hypnotism briefly. But here's, here's a point that I want to make overall that's sort of off this Ben question and this Ryan discussion on Twitter, but it relates back to the 9-3 and three thing that, that I've been talking about a lot. Um, in 2004, Ohio State lost four games, but they beat Michigan. And if the one thing about the Ohio State-Michigan game is that it's the last game of the year. So if you're winning at the end, you feel good that you're building to something. You also, if you're going to have a down season, you would rather win more at the end than at the beginning. You don't want to go 8-4 and four by losing your last four. You'd rather be 4-4 four and four and then win your last four. So Ohio State that year was 3-3. Three and three. They were 0-3 in the Big Ten. They lost to Northwestern, Wisconsin, and Iowa consecutively to fall to 3-3, three and three, fall out of the top 25, beat Indiana, beat Penn State, beat Michigan State to get to 6-3, and three, lose to Purdue to get to 6-4, and four, and then they beat Michigan. Michigan was number 7. Ohio State, in Ohio Stadium, wins 37-21 in sort of a coming out party for Troy Smith. And so that is, this is where I think possibly a 9-3 and three Ohio State season could have a lot of hope to it. The 2004 Ohio State season was a reset season. It was a transition from the 2002 National Championship team, which was a lot of remnants for that were around for the really good 2003 team. And then this transitioned to the fantastic 2005 team and the undefeated regular season 2006 team that played for a national championship. It took that year in between two transition. But by the end of that season, there was a down, fallow, wait, is that the right way to use that word? Fallow. Fallow. Plowed and harrowed, but left unsown for a period in order to restore its fertility as part of a crop rotation to avoid or to avoid surplus production. So it was a fallow period because you were planting crops. Were you planting crops? You're down, but you're planting. And that is the thing that I think is maybe on the table for Ohio State. Down, but planting. Planting with a first-year coach. Planting with a first-year starting quarterback. In the moment, that was the last year that I did not cover Ohio State. So I do not have a personal recollection or feeling from that year. But a lot of you out there listening to this did. 
When Ohio State was 3-3 three and three in 2004, I'm sure you were nuts. But then for Ohio State to win three in a row, lose to Purdue, then beat Michigan, you beat the rival, and then you win the bowl game. And then you have an upswing, you have the hand in your rivalry, and you have upswing and hope for the future, and look what you built to. If Ohio State goes 9-3, and three, and here's the other thing about going 9-3 and three with the win over Michigan, it means you're 8-3 and three before you get to Michigan. Ohio State hasn't lost 3 of 11 games in any period of time for a very, very, very long time. So if Ohio State's eight and three, they might have even been like five and three. And if they're five and three, you're gonna be nuts. But if they find a way to win their last four games, or even they go, you know, they they get to a point where they're uh, seven and four, but they beat Michigan to get to eight and four. You've beaten Michigan, and there's hope for the future. And I think in the moment, if you guys think about two thousand four, you will be able to view that season in its own way, as successful. And I think part of the issue last year, and we talked about it at the time, is Ohio State kept winning these close games and pulling things out, and so we compared them as if they were failing in comparison to their cohort, which, because they only had one loss, were still teams competing for the playoff. And you kept comparing them to those teams and seeing where they fell short. If they had lost two more of those games early and they had three losses during the regular season, you would have stopped comparing them to national title contenders and you would have started comparing them only to their Big Ten rivals. And then if they would have beaten Michigan, you would have said, yeah, take that. And there would have been no disappointment. There would have been a building a back, you build back up with excitement. Because at some point in that season, you would have accepted the fact that this team was going to fall short. And so then you reset your expectations. Ohio State never in the Urban Meyer era reset expectations in the middle of the year, which was an astounding thing and a great credit to Urban Meyer. But every year you got to the end of the season, and if Ohio State fell short then, it felt like they were falling short. If you had reset earlier, it could have felt like they were on an upswing. So in conclusion, I think there is a way for a 9-3 and three season, especially if it includes a win over Michigan, to feel like, at the end of it, this program is on an upswing. And when you compare it to 2004 and what happened before 2004, the two years before 2004, and what happened in the three years after 2004 with the 5, 6, and 7 teams, I think you'll understand why I don't think that would be a disastrous outcome for Ohio State football. Okay, so we're not actually going to get to email questions today. I see you emailers. Um, the email, uh, we're we getting some fewer emails than we had been getting, um, but I'm still reading them. I didn't feel like there were any that fit perfectly into what we wanted to do today. Um, sometimes the email questions are a little more intense and uh, leads me to not have time to delve into them as much. But I certainly do appreciate them, and I appreciate you guys uh, sending them along. Let's see if anybody's sending any reviews. If anyone yelling at us. Uh, I haven't had any for a while. Uh, ah, there's a good one here. 
I am a diehard Buckeye fan and have listened to every Ohio State podcast I can find in the web. This is number one to me. Doug does a great job keeping me informed about OSU and also is very interesting on a variety of topics. Definitely the podcast for intelligent listeners. None of the stupid takes that we just clickbait. And Doug has a great voice. Thank you very much. We've all heard a good content from a grating voice that is just unlistenable. He doesn't keep relying on catchphrases. Buckeye podcast for adults from Roland D'Amato, which is also one of my uh, fake Twitter names. So um, thanks to everybody. Thanks to another good review. Uh, oh, someone did not like the analysis. Oh. Someone said they didn't like some stuff before. Um, oh, this is a good, it's an interesting review. You guys can go read it. From Buckeye Brem from June 13th. Um, was a three-star. Five-star from Authentic Scott. Five-star from Roland D'Amato. So um, we appreciate you guys uh, sending reviews, whatever they are. Buckeye Brem, I'm going to read this because I think your comments are interesting. Um, what am I going to get to? Okay, here's what we're going to do, and then we're going to talk about hypnotism. Next week is July 3rd for the podcast, then July 10th. Then July 17th. The Big Ten Media Days are the 18th and 19th. I uh, do the unofficial Big Ten poll, preseason poll, because the Big Ten doesn't do one. So we at Cleveland.com have taken that on for many, many years now, eight years or so. So we'll have that to discuss on the 17th. I'm going to try to get some national people on the 3rd and the 10th. Um, and maybe we'll save the, the optimistic Ohio State, the 12-0 podcast, we'll call it, for sometime after Big Ten Media Days uh, leading into camp in August. Um, here's the thing about hypnotism. I'm curious. So this happened to me on this, uh, on this vacation. We went to this uh, – my wife and my two children, we went to this like interesting little like bar where like um, – when you order certain drinks, like a tiki god comes to life and the paintings come to life, but they get you, they make you order the drink for the tiki god to come to life. So my daughter had researched all these Disney things and wanted the tiki god to come to life. But I had to order like a $23 drink that's intended for two people to get the tiki god to come to life. But it's like vacation, you got to get the tiki god to come to life. But my wife um, also is eating very healthy right now and was not going to drink all the sugary stuff in this drink. So I never, I almost never drink. I have not been drunk. I mean, I've, I've probably been drunk twice in the past 10 years. I just don't drink. I act like an idiot without alcohol. But I started drinking this thing. The Tiki God came to life. My kids were excited. And then I started drinking this thing because I want to drink as much of like the $23 drink as possible. I had these long straws. Um, and so I started to get a little buzzed. And so my kids saw me for the, probably the first time ever in their lives. And I kept doing this thing. I do this a lot where I just say, normal, normal, normal. Like I'm getting back to normal right now. And I like put my hand over my face and wipe my face. I'm like, I'm normal now. And whenever I do that, that means I'm drunk. So for like 15 minutes, I was a little looped. Um, but it reminded me, I always tell this to people. It's like, what did it feel like? And like, I just am, I am so very infrequently drunk or buzzed. It's like, you're just doing stupid stuff and it makes sense to do it. And you sort of can't stop yourself from doing it. You know you're doing it, and it's not normal. But in the moment, it seems like the thing to do. That's being drunk, right? You've had alcohol. So 
always reminds me of I was on a, a previous vacation where there was a hypnotism show and I was got pulled up to the stage and I got hypnotized like a mamma jamma and I am susceptible to, to this stuff, man. So I wanted to see how many people got hypnotized. Have you ever been hypnotized? 96% no. There were 253 votes. People don't like that poll as much. 96% no, 4% yes. So uh, that's like... 10 people, 10 people out of 253 have ever been hypnotized. And I was great at being hypnotized. Um, and I, one of the things that happened at the end was the guy told me to go back to my seat in the audience to sit down. And then they, he said, when you hear the Lion King song, you're going to get back up and come back up on the stage. And so that happened. I did it. I climbed back up on the stage and then I took off my shoe. And he said, you're going to think that your shoe is Simba. So I took off my shoe and I was cradling my shoe in my arms and I was crying. And he said, um, what are you doing? And I just like, I said like, that's my boy. And then I lifted my shoe over my head as the Lion King music swelled. And I held my shoe up to the audience like Rafiki holds up Simba uh, to the kingdom. And I thought it was real, brother. Like if you ever doubt people at a hypnotism show. People thought I was a plant. I actually got hypnotized in two separate shows. Um, another At another moment, uh, I thought I was the lead singer in a rock band, and I grabbed the microphone, and I screamed to the crowd, what's up, B-words? And like was walking around the stage and like singing nonsense lyrics at the top of my lungs. I'm very good at being hypnotized, which also I think means I'm very susceptible to being drunk, which also means it's probably good that I don't do it very much. But I just would like to remind people, if you don't believe someone is actually hypnotized, they are. Because I was doing stuff that made total sense in the moment, including treating my shoe like Simba, and uh, it wasn't normal. So, try the project text. Project text slash campaigns slash 28. Give it a shot. Get ready for football season. Give it a shot. Listen to Buckeye Talk. Drop reviews on iTunes if you'd like. Read us at cleveland.com slash OSU for all our fine Ohio State content. And be excited about cleveland.com because great stuff is ahead. So, I'm glad to be back. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know the, we were off last week and the one before that was kind of like a downer in the hotel on a college tour. I was kind of in a weird headspace talking about very deep philosophical things. That's, uh, we're not going to do that. So I want to get back to more some, some more weird talk. We'll get back to some food talk, some more robot talk in the days ahead. But I think we have a really interesting Ohio State season ahead. And we're going to have a really interesting coverage season ahead here at Cleveland.com. So for now, I'm Doug Maurice. Great to be back with you folks, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.